Okay. Um, is it on? Is the light orange light means it's on? Actually, can we go to the document camera for a second? <clears throat> so uh, there's another good band, and uh, I was there last night, so I can see how our topic relates to what we're talking about right now. But uh, before we get into all of that, before we even talk about water, and before I introduce myself, I wanted to. Which way does this go? I just got this email. Um, April. Oh well relatively recently. I was in Calgary for metrics, so I just got it. And it says, uh, Jonathan, your request for details on the university's investment portfolio has been given consideration by the university management. University investments are managed by an external investment manager that is appointed under normal tendering practices. The Board of Governors, through its finance committee, monitors, tell me if you can't see this. There we go, how's that? The university investments are managed by the external investment manager that is appointed under normal tendering practices. The Board of Governors, through its finance committee, blah, blah, blah. They determine the standards. They determine how the portfolio is diversified. They protect the assets. They determine the income stream, blah, blah, blah. The university has a policy pro prohibiting smoking on campus except in designated areas. That makes sense. Um, accordingly, the investment management policy excludes investment in securities and companies involved in the sale, sale of tobacco-related products. Uh, this discussion was made by the Finance Committee uh, based on a health issue. The Finance Committee has a fiduciary responsibility, fiduciary responsibility to maximize return on the university's uh, investments. It's impossible to address all special interests that may be um, referred to the board for consideration, and many of the university stakeholders disagree with any attempt to do, do so. Oh, there's stakeholders again. These, these terms make sense. I'm a business student. So, um, as I mentioned you, to you on the phone, it's never been the university's practice to make detailed lists of investments, blah, blah, blah. So, um, what I did is I asked the university about uh, what investments they had. And we know in, in California, the uh, University of California has a huge, hundreds of billions of dollar fund or something like that. And students wanted to know, well, where's our money getting invested? Where's it going? And uh, it went to Sudan, and it was going to all these places where bad things were happening, and there was no social screens on, on these investments. And so I wanted to know, well, what about our university? What, what happens here? And that was my response. And of course, now I'm putting together an access to information request because they aren't going to give it to me. And so right now, our money in our university goes to anything except tobacco-related industries. So it's good to know that uh, our, our portfolio at the university is well invested and is taking care of uh, people around the world. And uh, you know, the fact that there's a genocide going on in Sudan really isn't that important, as long as we're making a return, because they have a fiduciary responsibility to do so. So I have a nice long access to information request put out for that. So if any of you are interested about that, please feel free to email me. Um, I'm, you know, I'm going to need all the help I can get to push this issue. I'm here for summer session. and. Many people aren't here, so that's all I wanted to say. But before I get into anything here, um, my name is Jonathan Veal, and I'm Dr. Hall's uh, teaching and research assistant. And uh, I spend a lot of time reading things that he assigns me to read, and uh, investigating things, and trying to find it, find information about uh, video conferences and people we can talk to, and all those good things. I'm a fourth-year business student at the university. And uh, I'm majoring in international management. And I've, I've, so far, I've convinced the faculty to, to let, let me take a whole bunch of globalization studies classes. And they seem to be counting towards my degree. So hopefully, it all works out. 
and I can graduate uh, one day, hopefully. Um, but to our lecture today, and uh, actually it's not really a lecture, it is all about you, because today, uh, if you look at your, uh, your uh, course outline, it says that 10% of your grade is determined by participation and attendance. And if I just do my math right, I saw some of you working in the computer labs doing your papers, so hopefully everyone has their paper in. And uh, you have the final exam worth 25% and participation worth 10%. So 35% of your mark's up in the air. So at least 10% of that is going to be you debating and uh, discussing this. So all of your faces will hopefully be on the internet by the end of this class. Um, and I will, I will say things that you won't like, and I want you to argue with me or bring it up. So the title, and I, I think, I don't know how many people get to title Dr. Hall's classes, but I'm going to title one here. And it's going to be called Sustainability, and that's my serial killer writing, Earth <laughs> Democracy, oh, and Life. Did that show up? I, <laughs> I should have typed it. And uh, as you can see on here. There's something about this writing. Yeah, it feels good. It does. And uh, it says, oh, what was that bump? And there's our earth. And as you can see, um, a good 70 plus percent of it's water in that picture. So hopefully uh, we have lots of that left. And I'm done with this one here. So why did I talk, call it the class Sustainability, Earth Democracy, and Life when Dr. Hall is talking to me about the pedagogy and the global commodification and privatization of water? And there's a whole bunch of big words there. And then hopefully you'll have a really great idea of what they mean by the end of the class, and hopefully already. But uh, we're going to just sort of dive right into this issue and see where it goes. Now, I added sustainability to, to the title. Because business just doesn't work unless it's sustainable. And it's great to have a slave trade and make all the money off cotton picking or whatever the case is. But if it's not a sustainable industry that looks after human rights, then uh, it's not going to work out very long. And as a business student, I know that to stay profitable, you have to have a really uh, long-term vision. And I call it earth democracy because a lot of what we talk about when privatization comes up, and we're going to get into it, is that the best way to run things and the most efficient methods that seem to be coming up is right there with people thinking about the environment at small sort of settings like this making decisions. Um, and I talked about life because one of the biggest things that differentiates our world from any other world in our solar system or that we know of is that we've got a lot of water and we have water that sustains life. Without it, we cannot live. Um, most of us are made up of water, I'm hoping, but 90% uh, of us are made. 90% of our bodies are water, so these are all very important things to uh, consider when we're talking about uh, water and sustainability. Now, Dr. Hall talked to me about pedagogies, and he said you got to include the pedagogical dimensions. And I smiled and nodded, and I was really interested in it. I had no idea what the word meant, though, so I had to go to uh, Google and type it in and find out what the word meant. And what it essentially means is sort of the educational, the activism sort of aspects of what we're talking about. And how once we know all of these things and we've synthesized them, 
What do we do next? What is that? What's the importance of having all this information if we cannot be activists and say something about it and contribute to society? So that's what we are getting into right now. So I'd like to start. Um, I've invited Leonardo DiCaprio to come to our class today. Um, he, uh, he, he turned it down, though, but I have his website. So if we can go to the computer. Leonardo DiCaprio, you might not recognize him until you see his picture here. Is it coming up? Should come up right away. So the first part of the class is going to be about informing everyone on the issue. And then, of course, we're going to talk about it. So Leonardo DiCaprio, you can see him here. There you go. He's, uh, he's apparently a really big activist and uh, is really into environmental issues and he's concerned about global warming and all that, that stuff. So we're going to go to Wired Planet here. Do we have sound? Hopefully this works. I can't make it bigger, I don't think. Consider this. Sorry, can't we make it bigger. We live on a water planet. Through the millennium, the water cycle has supported all life. Shaping weather, seasons, and climate. Providing habitats for most of the world's living things. And most of them including us, are almost entirely made up of water. Now consider this. Water is a finite substance, a limited resource. Only a tiny fraction of the Earth's water is fresh. It supports everything from agriculture and sanitation to aquatic ecosystems like rivers and streams. Water falls unevenly across the planet, while much of it is locked up in glaciers, permanent snow cover, ice, and permafrost. Water is also stuck underground, very deep in the earth and hard to reach. To make matters worse, water is being threatened by pollution, overpopulation, climate change, mismanagement, and war. Pollution is so severe that diseases are increasing in both humans and Animals. Habitats are being destroyed. Rain is turning into acid. So many chemicals flow into rivers and lakes that the actual composition of water in some places has been fundamentally changed. Human encroachment is also drying out aquifers, diverting the natural flow of rivers and straining water supplies, hidden in everyday consumption is the careless and unnecessary waste of water. Massive dams displace millions of people and destroy whole ecosystems. Global warming is altering the water cycle, causing more severe and unpredictable flooding and droughts, ultimately shifting where water flows. Unregulated corporate privatization threatens access to water for the poor, while some governments fail to deliver water where it is needed most. These stresses have created political and military conflict Ultimately, humanity is poisoning, squandering, and overburdening water resources. The result is that millions of people lack access to clean water. Millions of children die every year from preventable waterborne diseases. The lack of clean water and basic sanitation traps people in poverty. People are fighting and dying. We are in a crisis point, and we still have time to turn this around. We can conserve water and not waste it. Invest in smart water infrastructure and technologies. Increase environmental regulations and polluting industries. 
compel government leaders to fulfill financial pledges for clean water, ensure that water is not treated as a commodity. But most important, we must recognize that access to clean water is a basic human right. And the United Nations should adopt a global treaty on the right to water. Water equals life. There is no separation. By protecting water, we can protect ourselves and this blue planet. Well, uh, thank you, Leonardo DiCaprio. I guess we have uh, have a plan now to solve all of the world's water problems and crises. And uh, we can go forward with uh, you know, feeling really great about everything and uh, not worry about it. But uh, it seems that there's a lot of contending views on this particular issue. Uh, when uh, Leonardo DiCaprio talks about pollution and and all of these, these problems that are polluting our water, destroying our water, making it inaccessible, uh, whatever the case is, it seems that uh, it seems that a lot of business interests would just call these sort of things externalities. They're just the, the extra sort of factors that they are part of the business environment. And we could provide a solution that doesn't involve uh, universal human rights, that involves just letting supply and demand regulate this, this problem. And by doing it that way, we can have businesses. Because who wants to buy crappy water, right? No one wants to buy crappy water. So it would have to be a really great quality, too. So of course, business might be able to do that. But that's, that's another perspective that I'll talk about in a second. But first, if we can go to this here. Uh, this here, I don't know if you've seen any of you have seen this book. Apparently, Vandana Shiva, she's like, the person, she's the, she's the dude when it comes to water to talk about. And uh, actually a pretty amazing woman. There, she has several books out here. And I stole one of her terms, and you're going to see it. Earth, Democracy, Justice, Sustainability, and Peace. I don't know where her, oh, there it is, yeah. Shiva. And uh, another one here, which uh, Dr. Hall was just talking about, uh, Biopiracy, the Plunger of Nature and Knowledge. But uh, let's get to right, right where she's talking about here. Now, she's from India. And uh, India is actually one of the places in the world where there's the most water. They receive the most rainfall. And they have huge aquifers uh, stored up of uh, billions of cubic meters of water that's uh, all over the country. But India has been one of the leading, leading places where dams have been constructed and where uh, there's been huge deforestation and uh, replacing crops. Um, replacing crops with eucalyptus, which is actually something that, that grows in uh, really wet climates. So it sucks up all the moisture, but eucalyptus isn't natural to, uh, to India. But for, anyways, these are, these are, let's get to the, right to the topic here. Water wars. She calls these conflicts water wars. And um, she, she defines a water war uh, in a lot of ways that we might say are, are uh, religious or... or you know, cultural or whatever. But she, she says, uh, here we go, ni ni this is a quote from it. Uh, 1995, Ismail Sergi Vice President of the World Bank, made a much quoted prediction about the future of war. If the wars of this century are fought over oil, the wars of the next century will be fought over water. Many of the signs suggest that Sir Jeldon is on, tar on target. Stories of war shortages, shortages in Israel, India, China, Bolivia, Canada, Mexico, Ghana, and the United States are making headlines in major newspapers, um, in academic journals. 
Water scare, uh, New York Times featured an article, Water Scarcity in Texas. And, uh, you know, maybe these people are just doomsayers, but maybe, you know, I guess, what are we, what are we going to lose if, uh, if they are right? But anyways, I want to talk about something here. Now let's get to India here. Um, is that showing up? Perfect. So <clears throat> she talks about forests as being like a, a natural dam. And uh, India has always been a place where there's a lot of uh, huge, vast forests. But now these forests are being replaced by a monoculture eucalyptus or mass uh, agricultural farming or, or whatever the case is. And when, when these, these, thing, these uh, types of forests are replaced, it leads to big problems in India. And actually, one of the places where there's the world's uh, wettest region uh, on Earth gets 11 meters of rainfall. Um, just to be fair, I saw another source that said seven, but you know, I think if we got seven meters here, we'd be in dire straits. But uh, 11 meters of rainfall each year. Today, its forests are gone. Uh, Cherapunjan has a drinking water problem. My own transition, this is Vandana Shiva, physics to ecology was spurred by the disappearance of Himalayan streams that I played as a child. And uh, so one of the world's areas now that has the most rainfall actually has a problem. And that's why I was talking about sustainability before. Uh, that's why I was talking about sustainability before. Because just, just because we have lots of rainfall and because we, because we have an effective water cycle, it doesn't mean that we have lots of water. And so it seems that a lot of people are saying that sustainability has to deal with a sort of a holistic, a holistic approach um, to water and that you can't just think of it as a, as a resource. You have to think of it as, as sort of a, the whole ecosystem in a lot of ways. How does this work here? Now, this is another book, which, uh, which we actually tried to get Maud Barlow and Tony Clark to come and speak on video conference. The problem is, is that when we do video conferences, we have to find a facility and you, know, you have to either pay for it or you have to find a professor at another university to, to let you use it. And we couldn't find anyone to do that. So we actually had someone from the Council of Canadians, which is what Maud Barlow is part of. But uh, Blue Gold, the battle against corporate theft of the world's water. You can kind of imagine what the perspective is on uh, this book. It's slant, if you will. Now, in Leonardo DiCaprio's presentation, they talked about finite supplies. He talked about finite supplies. Finite. What is finite? Does anyone know what finite is? Anyone want to press their button and tell me what finite means? Limited supply of resource. Yeah, exactly. So it's a, it's a really it's a really limited supply. Oh, what's going on here? Leonardo DiCaprio keeps coming back. Um, yeah, exactly. It's just it's limited. There, it's not an infinite so source of water. There, there's only so much to go around. And so what uh, Maud Barlow and Tony Clark talk about in their book, uh, Blue Gold, is that um, the total amount of water on Earth. Ooh, I really shouldn't chew my nails. Okay, the total amount of water on Earth is approximately 1.4 billion cubic kilometers, about 330 mu million cubic miles. Um, each edge of the cube would be 1,120 kilometers long and twice the length of Lake Superior. So, this, you know, it sounds like we got a lot of water there. Uh, the amount of this that's fresh, however, is that it's 30, is 36 million cubic meters. So, only 2.6% of this total is actually drinkable for us, or actually usable in the environment. And that means 11 cu million cubic kilometers. Um, 
of it is, is actually part of the water cycle. That means it gets recharged quickly. You can, you can access it. There's a whole bunch of water that we rely on underground. Now, where is it here? Let me find a pen. So a lot of this rain is uh, runoff that goes back into the oceans by rivers and groundwater. And a lot, a lot of uh, business people would say that the water going into the ocean, that's just wasted. We, sh we should be collecting all of that. And that's, uh, that's, that's a, a waste of resources, right? Like we could just extract all that, and then that would deal with a lot of our water problem because it's just going into salt water and, and getting wrecked, right? But but there's actually a problem if you, if you don't have fresh water going into sorry I'm kind of uh, fresh water going into the ocean and the water's evaporating then the salinity in the ocean increases. Now I'm not trying to bore you with all these silly statistics and all that stuff. I'm actually like I you know I know we're all intelligent people here, but I, before we get to the stage where we're even arguing or debating about these topics, we have to understand like some of the finite details and the trivialities about this stuff. Maybe not so trivial, I don't know. Uh, where did I want to go here? So I guess I think I've established that, that there's, only, there's only so much water available in, in the world, and it's not necessarily an infinite supply. Now, when you talk about business, we talk about uh, sustainability, and we talk about having the ability to, to uh, have a supply. So if I want to sell water to anyone in this room, I have to have a source of water. And we can, we can draw fresh water from lakes, we can draw it from aquifers, we can draw it from rivers. Um, maybe we could collect rainwater, or we could, we could use some sort of technology to extract the salt out of, out of the ocean water and use that. But if that supply is not unlimited, like everything really, then, then I have a problem. Because I'm saying that as a business person, that I'm going to, re I'm going to buy and sell water uh, on the market. So that means it's regulated by supply and demand. But if the supply is only so much and the demand is almost infinite because the population keeps growing, then you have a huge problem because that means it's what we call is like a perfectly elastic demand curve. But uh, the problem is, is that the price means it could be anything then too. So someone has to pay for water if it's going to be privatized. So who, who's that going to be? And in India, where they, where they, uh, or wherever you are, and if you need water and you're not rich, what does that mean? If you can't buy it, what does that mean? Too bad. <laughs> it could mean too bad. Maybe you have to get a job and find a way to pay for water, which is actually what happened in a few countries. But before we get to that, I still need to stick to the topic at hand, which is understanding more about how water sort of works here. Um, where did I want to go? Now, how many of you have heard about the Aral Sea? Errol Sea. Does anyone want to talk about it? Maybe mention it. Someone want to say, tell me about the Errol Sea? I have some pictures. Sure, go for it. It's a, uh, the water. It's a body of water that, um, because uh, somehow the water got cut off, the the input to it, and so it's slowly become smaller and smaller and smaller, to the point where it's something like less than half the size that it was before, and super super. Saline content as well because of the evaporation. Where is this? Sure. Okay. So I'll show you where this is actually. Uh, Errol Sea. Errol. It's by the Caspian Sea. Um, let's see if I have a good picture. Here we go. Okay. Let's 
see if I can. I have to get used to this whole camera thing. Now there is the Aral Sea, and uh, it actually, when it was the Soviet Union, this is all part of the Soviet Union, you know, so up to like Iran and all this, this used to be all the Soviet Union. And the Soviets, what they did is they decided that all of the, all of the rivers flowing into the Aral Sea would be diverted. And so what they did is they diverted the water from the Aral Sea and used it for massive irrigation projects around, around this area in Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Kyrgyzstan, um, Tajikistan, all these, all these countries uh, just started growing crops. And what they did is they pumped, because, because the area is necessarily naturally uh, nu highly nutritious so soil, they replaced, they added fertilizers and the millions of tons of pesticides into the water system as it was diverted. And they started growing cotton. Now, I don't know about you guys, but do you know where cotton's from? Like where you, where you would get cotton normally? Like cotton requires a lot of water to grow. You need, you need, need it. And this area is prone to, like it's a desert. Like it's, it's a desert. So growing cotton in the desert is what the Soviets thought was a great idea to start being self-sufficient and making it possible for, for them to not rely on, on the capitalist system of buying, buying uh, cotton from them. So what they did is they grew, they grew uh, cotton and they, all sorts of stuff in here. The problem was, and I'm going to stick to this, the problem is, is that if you divert all of the water from uh, a sea, then it starts to shrink because it's not getting recharged. So uh, will the Aral Sea disappear forever? Oh, I'm going to zoom out here. So this is the RLC. Let's see here. That was the original 1957. Everything was good. There was fishing. There was maybe not everything, but there was fishing, um, very a sustainable fishing industry, a uh, all sorts of uh, commercial activity going around around the uh, the sea. And as is the yellow actually islands? Uh, the yellow is land now. Is land. Yeah. So yeah, like here, the, these would be islands in 1957. And uh, the islands get bigger, <laughs> and then they keep getting bigger, and then they keep getting bigger, and uh, until the Aral Sea is a, sh form a shadow of its former self. And uh, so I guess there's some scientists here that say that the Aral Sea will disappear forever in the, in the last four years. Um, they, they have dire predictions about it unless something is done. The, the, the problem was is that when the Soviets were there, they brought like a sort of cohesiveness to the region. They, uh, they were a central government, a unified government, so they were able to divert all the rivers. Now the problem is, is that there's like six different countries that are affected by the Aral Sea or the water going into it. So it's really hard to come to sort of any agreement because in uh, Kazakhstan, for instance, where they're growing all of these, where they're still growing all of these, these products, they... Uh, they don't want to divert the water back into the Aral Sea. They they don't they aren't concerned about those things. But, but you know, down in Uzbekistan, where where people well even people around in Kazakhstan are suffering from from uh, terrible terrible conditions. Which I'll show you in a second here. I just want to show you more pictures of the Aral Sea, though. So this is the Aral Sea originally, and this is it in 2003, a satellite photo. 
So it's pretty amazing how much it's declined. And you'll notice all this here, all this uh, white stuff. That's salt. And, uh, and sand and the seabed, essentially. But uh, it's really easy to look at these, these maps of the Soviet Union and, and whatever else and uh, say, oh, it's just water or whatever. But, uh, but when you're on the ground and there's pictures, it looks a lot different. So these are, this is the coastline right here. I don't know which is the coast. I would assume that this is. Oh, maybe not. Maybe this is. I don't know. But, but yeah, who knows? It's probably declined over time. But uh, these are ships. This used to be the fishing industry. There used to be 22 different kinds of fish, freshwater fish. But uh, there's only like like six or something like that now. So it's press buttons. The Aral Sea used to be a freshwater lake. Uh, there was salt. It, it wasn't a lake. It, it's, a, it's a sea um, because because there's just by definition, there has to be a certain salt concentration. But uh, there was so much, enough fresh water in, in recharging it that freshwater species could, could live in it. Um, so what they did is, here's some more. They're uh, off building the canal, building some canals here. Maybe, I don't know, maybe this guy's like a, some sort of Soviet, we can all imagine, some sort of Soviet leader guy. And he's trying to help them out here with their digging the, of the trenches. But what we forget when we're doing all of, when we're looking at these pictures is that um, there's people here, and they uh, these are the indigenous people of that area, and they have a life. They do things, and actually, like look at this. If I were to just start with this, is this Lethbridge? Is this is that could that be Drumheller maybe? Oh oh, where is this? But uh, this is in in uh, Kazakhstan, and. Uh, the devastating effects that this has had on the, on the population is actually described, and I'll show you in a second here. I think I saw this in Star Wars or something, but I don't know. I don't know what, does anyone know what that animal is? I don't know. It's a camel. Some, yeah, I guess it's a camel. There you go. So, and that's the sea, of course. And you can, uh, so people do, these kinds of decisions made by central governments, which I'll talk about shortly, uh, have a significant effect on on the uh, population of an area. Oh, that's not the one. Where do I go? So, here you go. Uh, this is a BBC news story for, for this particular area, and I wanted to show something. Disease is rife. Uh, it talks about tuberculosis um, and there's no jobs, there's no food, and the sea died. Um, the tea is salty because it's contaminated by water. It killed their father, uh, who did, who died 10 years ago of cancer, of the, I don't know what that is, esophagus, there you go. Um, Zalaku is pregnant, goes for, more, goes for more water, like 80% of expected mothers, mothers. she is anemic. Uh, it's quite a disaster that's going on. And now that there's no, you know, I guess there, if there was anything good that came from the whole situation with the Soviets, is that that central government made it possible for, for a solution maybe to be resolved. But, but that's not the case right now. So what else do I want to show you here? Um, four years ago, former Soviet. Yeah, divert the rivers to grow cotton in the desert, uh, which created an ecological and human disaster. But, you know, it's easy to look back on this and say that uh, that's before, and now we can move forward and try and resolve, resolve this issue. We've, we've learned from our mistakes. But these things happen around the world still. 
uh, we're growing eucalyptus in India, which isn't a natural environment. And we're growing rice in the desert, of the southwestern desert of the United States. So these processes of globalization, why, why is this all working? Why is it that we're buying rice from southwestern United States and not from China or, or whatever the case is? Um, and that brings me to my next point, which is, which is true costs. So what is the cost of growing eucalyptus in India if it's depleting the water supply? What is the cost of growing cotton in Kyrgyzstan if that has a huge economic uh, impact on those people and they suffer from, you know, we saw anemia and, and lower birth rates or, and disease and all of those things. What about true costs? What, what, does, that, what does that have to say about it? So we're, where do I want to go here? I want to show you a short presentation because I think maybe I'm not making, not following a completely logical train, so I wanted to clear it up. So let's go here. What's this? Okay. So a lot of what we do in globalization, we look at one part of the world and we look at another part of the world and we're trying to find the similarities and why the same processes are happening in one place and why they're happening in another place. So let's go to southern Alberta here. Oh, good. I wanted to show you that. Actually, can we go to the document camera? So in southern Alberta here, we have uh, this Dr. Holland was all about this. He was uh, arrested for, for some sort of transgression that happened at this dam. This is the Old Man River Dam. And it's actually the biggest in southern Alberta. It's, yeah, he says it's complete misinformation, but he'll clear it up shortly. So we have the dam here, and this is actually a really new dam. And uh, I just wanted to, because I'm going to probably talk about it, and you're going to be like, why is John talking about dams? But we have irrigated farmlands, reservoir, diversion canal, dam, spillway. This is where all the water comes down if it overflows in the reservoir. This is the actual dam that prevents the water. This is the original, original course of the river. And uh, I've been talking about true costs. I've been talking about, about sort of e economic globalization. Now, Lethbridge is a desert too. Like Southern Alberta is a desert. So what are we growing here? And why do we need so much water to grow it? And is that sustainable? So I wanted to get to my presentation. Now, uh, there's a couple videos we're going to see this class. And the first one is, uh, well, this one here is the first one that I've made. Now, I have to be honest with you. I don't know anything about computers and like how they all, all work when it comes to video video technology. Uh, I'm going to show it to you anyways. Where should I go? Well, I should have tested this. <laughs> That's why it'll open. Now, I, I don't know why, but for some reason when I was making it, the volume gets louder at the end. So I <laughs> it kind of is a, a shaker for you, but we'll see. Guess. Uh, oh dear. <laughs> Media player will open it. Can we increase the volume on it at all? 
pictures to find out what might be useful ones. Said animal to guide or first stop, then object. Then badger guide your game. The old man said muskrat guide weaving down. After a long time, muskrat rose to the surface, holding between his paws a little ball of mud. The old man took this ball of mud into his pocket. The mud began to swell, growing larger and larger, until it became the whole earth. The old man then named the people, and they took what was theirs. The thing is, Indigenous towns established for the LDS religion and supported by agriculture. In 1887, after trying very hard to establish a settlement on the land between the valley and the waters of the river, John Orcar decided to establish a religion and agrarian society on the site of Mill Creek, south of Bloodwizard.
flows into the Hudson's Bay, while south of here, the Mississippi River system turns into Gulf of Mexico. This is one of the few places in Canada where water flows south and is part of the international waterway, and as such is governed by international law and conventions. This will be discussed in greater detail during the class. smaller than the Elbow River Delta for some weeks. These include the St. Lawrence Reservoir and Clark Lake Reservoir. From the large reservoirs spring a series of canals, secondary canals, and a major canal. Generally, water is transported by gravity, but irrigation relies on electric pumps to create fields of water. Diversion channels must be constructed as well. Millions of tons of rock and earth are removed. After the dam is constructed, the original course of the river is forever altered. Hundreds of hectares of land is flooded. This created an intense armed water war between the Pegan Gunfighter Society, farmers, and the provincial and federal governments in the 1990s. Two opponents of the dam were arrested. This conflict is far from resolved. The lone fighters protesting the destruction of their ancestral land in the undemocratic process of its development, while farmers demanded unhindered access to water. The development of the dam became archaeological sites.
Merriman River Dam is a major symbol of power in southern Alberta. Farmers and their proponents are the owners of the project, and they control the flow of water. The dam is an example of a basic form of privatization. As a small group of individuals, control is reduced to accessibility as a formerly common asset. Power plays a central role in the process of privatization. While organizations like the WTO do not finance the construction of dams in southern Alberta, and these make a water project, the current form of globalization is a poor process to promote its reconstruction. Because water-intensive monoculture crops are the best economic way for local farmers to remain globally competitive, and if these farmers want to use arguably unsustainable methods of irrigation, it's not unreasonable to assume that greater global processes affecting competitiveness instigated the construction of dams in southern Alberta. Around the world, people are questioning the sustainability of these projects and are rising up in water wars against their development. These wars may be disguised as religious or cultural conflicts, but as Van Damish Shiva argues, these are really water wars driven by economic globalization. The fact is, water is a finite resource with a demand for it being increasing exponentially. At the same time, the supply is being reduced due to pollution and irrecoverable industrial assets. What really is the best way for us to move forward? 